Good morning, Gator Nation. Welcome back to the In All Kinds of Weather Forecast, the Florida Georgia Week episode of the In All Kinds of Weather Forecast. You can call it the world's largest outdoor cocktail party, as I choose to do. You can ignore that and try to come up with something different. You can call it the war for the ore. You can just call it Florida, Georgia. You can call it the River City Showdown, whatever, the Bold City Bash, whatever. It is Florida, Georgia. The game itself is unmistakable. We all know the stakes that are attached to it. It is a rivalry game. Even if Florida were to be 0-7 coming into this game, a win in this game would still make this season be remembered in a positive light because that's the, the power of winning this game. You win this game, your season becomes that much better. It just It just does mean more than the other games. But before we get into all of that, I am your host, Neil Shulman. You can follow me on Twitter at All Kinds Weather, on Instagram at All Kinds Weather Blog, and on Facebook and YouTube under the name In All Kinds of Weather. My co-host Dustin Smith is also with me today. You can follow him at IAKOW Dustin on Twitter. My other co-host, Chris Yanes, also with me, uh, also with us today. You can follow him on Twitter at Mr. Crispitz. And for a special occasion, former Florida Gator wide receiver Frankie Hammonds Jr. is with us today. He'll be he'll be talking about his playing time at Florida under two different coaches, part of four different Florida Georgia battles, and he'll help us talk about the Gators' chances against the Georgia Bulldogs. But before we get into all of that, quick word about our sponsors slash partners. We are proudly partnered with the Gator Good Foundation, the nonprofit organization that sends underprivileged and deserving Gator fans to the swamp. We just did execute our 2022 campaign with Alec and Bennett. But if you believe that you or someone you know is worthy of the honor for next year, please email us, GatorGoodFoundation at gmail.com. As always, donations are very much appreciated. So to donate to our cause, please go to our website, GatorGoodFoundation.com, and click on the donate button. Second, you are proudly sponsored by Stingray Branding. These folks will put a sting in your marketing and deliver results that will wow your clients. Whether it's web design, logo design, branding, graphic design, social media management, search engine optimization, marketing strategy, or mobile app design, Stingray Branding has you covered. If you or someone you know needs professional help in any of the above, here are three great reasons why you should choose Stingray Branding. Number one is it is a veteran-owned business. Can't think of a much better way to properly thank those who serve our country than by giving the business. Two, it's run by a UF alum and big-time Gator fan. Number three, they've got the personal stamp of approval from In All Kinds of Weather as they did our new logo, our new website. Uh, they also did the Gator Good Foundation website. They also did the Gator Collective website and the Gator Collective new logo, and they do the marketing for the Charleston Gator Club. So if you're listening to this podcast and you need help in any of the aforementioned areas, rest assured that Stingray Branding will more than take care of you. To learn about their services and rates, go to stingraybranding.com. And before we get into the big Topic of discussion today, Florida, Georgia with Frankie Hammond. Chris, Dustin, welcome to the show. We got a commit to talk about first in Roderick Kearney Jr., the four-star offensive tackle from the Jacksonville area, formerly committed to the Florida State Seminoles, took a visit to Gainesville over the summer. It did not appear to have gone super well, so 
in the immediate aftermath of that UF visit, he committed to FSU. Seminole fans laughed. They rejoiced. They whooped it up. They hooted and hollered. They loved it. And it seemed like FSU had a great offensive line class there with Lucas Simmons and Roderick Kearney. Of course, as we know, that didn't stick. He wound up coming to the Florida-Utah game on September the 3rd. He loved it. Wound up taking two more visits to FSU for the Boston College game and the Clemson game, both at night. Neither of those visits appear to have helped sway him back over to FSU as there were some rumblings that he maybe wasn't as solid to his FSU commitment as he once was. Wound up flipping back to the Gators after that Clemson game. He is now a Gator. Let's talk about it. Dustin, uh, we'll start with you. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna steal one from Andrew Ivins on the 247 Sports website. This is what he says about the big time near top 100 uh, get that we got in Kearney. A mauler up front who's able to create plenty of push with his glutes, looks the part at six foot four, three hundred pounds, has spent the past few years working in a run heavy spread attack that asks its tackles to pull and get outside the hashes a lot. And this is what I love is quick to find and take advantage of leverage that right there, those three, four sentences. That's all I need to hear. This is a huge get for our offensive line. And I look for him to get early playing time next year, especially with Osiris Torrance moving on. Yeah, Dustin definitely echo that. And just, I'm going to take the perspective of what this means broadly for the program and where we're at, you know, this is a kid that, you know, after he visited Florida, you know, was trying to, it, I don't say bad mouthing, but basically saying the visit was so bad that he wanted to just go ahead and commit to Florida state and kudos to the staff for staying on him and ultimately getting him to visit again and then getting him to commit and the, for the staff to not be discouraged by that bad news and to stay on him. This is a trend now we've seen with several prospects where they've now gotten at least two or three flips from different schools, and I suspect there are more to come. This is going to be a big week for recruiting. Obviously, we have Cormani McLean coming up October 27th, Caden McDonald coming up on Halloween a week from today. So the recruiting is just heating up for National Signing Day. This is going to be a big class, both in numbers and in quality. This is going to be a game-changer class for the University of Florida. And Kearney is, a, is the crown jewel so far, so far, of the offensive line class. Yeah, definitely agree with that statement. I mean, Kearney is one of three guys on the offensive line with him, Harris, and and Bryce Lovett committed. Kearney is the guy that I think is more of the plug-and-play piece in the offensive line, but I, I do like that Florida is putting an emphasis on the trenches, and I just I love that they go and, and take one away from Tallahassee. Keeping him home, he's a Jacksonville kid, Orange Park, but just to be able to go into Tallahassee and take him away – after he visited FSU for their Clemson game, after he visited FSU for their Boston College game, both night games, he had two night environments there, only came to Florida for one against Utah, went to two FSU night games after that, still got him. Great job by the staff to stay on him, as Chris said, and wind up taking him home. And with that, all taken care of, former Florida Gators wide receiver Frankie Hammond Jr. is with us today. He was a receiver for the Gators in the end of the Urban Meyer years and the beginning of the Will Muschamp years from 2008 to 2012. He was Florida's third leading receiver in 2012 with almost 300 yards on the year. 
most notably for our purposes today, caught three balls for 46 yards in the 2010 win over the Georgia Bulldogs. Also wound up playing for the Kansas City Chiefs for four years. Frankie, thank you so much for your time. Welcome to our show, and we look forward to having a pretty fun discussion tonight. Pleasure being on the show. Uh, like I said, I look forward to the, to the topics, and thank you for bringing me on so we can uh, talk about some Florida football. Yeah, of course. Um, so we do like to start our shows with a segment that we like to call the lightning round, which gets everybody who listens to the pod a little bit more familiar with you and your background. Uh, and just, yeah, just let everyone get to know you. So first question is always the same for every guest. Why did you become a Florida Gator? So uh, I'm originally from South Florida. So uh, me growing up, naturally, I was a Miami fan. And uh during that time when I was coming out of high school in 2008, it seems like everybody was going to Miami. And for me, my reasoning was that everybody went there. And I think at the time, I remember like two or three receivers that I already had went there early and they were on a pro style offense. So that's two receivers on the field at the time. So I'm like, uh, with the guys that are already there, with the guys that had committed there and I get it. I mean, every place you got to go, you got to go there and compete. But it was just like at Florida, they were in the spread where it's three to four receivers on the field at a time. And I'm like, huh, I like my odds a little better in the spread <laughs> as far as getting on the field faster. You know what I mean? So that was the sole reason. And just, I don't know, Florida just felt more like home to me. You know what I mean? And I got a lot of crap for it coming up. You know what I mean? Because everybody wants to see you stay home. And like I say, at the time, everybody from South Florida was trying to go to Miami to, you know what I mean, bring back what Miami used to be. And so, like I said, I just came here, made the commit and never looked back. I think you made the right decision. I think it's uh pretty, pretty easy to see that now, which, which program mm -hmm. has gone in, in the better direction, uh, especially since those days. But I mean, how, how instrumental was Dan Mullen in, or, or, and, and, or urban Meyer in your recruitment process to Florida? Versus how much uh, was the campus, the people around them, the support staff, and, and so on? Uh, I think they were very instrumental. It was really uh, Billy Gonzalez. Well, Doc Holiday was really the person, like, I guess he was slated for my area. So he was, like, the first person I, I originally met was Doc Holiday, And then a week later, you know what I mean, it, it got moved over to Billy G. And it was just... On and popping from there, I mean, the moment I talked to him, I think a week later he came down to watch me practice. And like I said, it just felt like home. It felt like they cared. And then when I finally got to the school, everyone showed love. I mean, from the students. I mean, they had later. I don't I don't know if this was, like, um, planned or whatnot, but I don't know. I guess the frat houses, I guess, when they have, like, big recruiting things, they put, like, everybody's recruiting name on, like, this big, I don't know, flag or whatever and he literally had like all of our names lined up literally going down um i can't remember the name of the road but where the dorms at by springs near the track it was like everybody's name and like i say it just felt like home felt greeted felt good felt accepted you know what i mean from both sides coaching and like i say it's a great school it's not like educationally it's a bad place to be it's one of the top schools so like i say all around i think it was just no brainer just from top to bottom coaches the environment the school it was just checked off all my boxes. Yeah, for sure. I, th I don't think you're alone in feeling that way. I think a lot of recruits come to Florida and they feel like it's home. Um, 
especially the guy we just got, Roderick Kearney, who we just flipped from FSU. So definitely. Yeah, I seen that earlier. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely something that's got the Gator Nation feeling good these days. So what was your favorite game to be a part of as a Gator? And then what was your favorite Gator football game to watch after your playing days were over? So when I played, I think the best game to play in for me is Florida State just because I hate them from top to bottom. So <laughs> every year is just – don't get me wrong, I still have my hate for Tennessee and my hate for Georgia as well, but I think Florida State beats it all across the board. So it's just every year, and it's at the end of the season, so it's like you kind of look forward to that game. And like I said, when you're doing good, it, it means a little more. And even when you're down, I feel like it still means something as well. But like I said, it's just that icing on the cake at, at the end, no matter how – which way the season's going, it's just – that game can always end on a good note when you beat them. So I think Florida State is the is the game. And I think once I left, I think um, I still would have to say Florida State. I just, I just, I don't know the the hatred for that for that school is just at an all time high. And then you know I have my friends that went to FSU from high school and just everybody across the board, just friends that I meet that are just diehard FSU fans. It's just I look forward to being able to talk my trash all year long when we win. And then we haven't lost too many. So I've been able to talk good for a while, but when we lose, I know I got to keep quiet for that year. And then I just look forward to that game the next season coming up. So I can, I can talk my trash again. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. There was a stretch where we didn't get to talk too much trash um, the year after you left. And then you know, for five years after that, but <laughs> <You're right. laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I remember that. Like in 2010, I think there was there was a little underneath pattern that John Brantley threw a touchdown to Robert Clark for a touchdown, Clark. and then there, yep. there you were going to their fans, and they were doing that chop in their and faces. I, was, uh, I couldn't do it after that. <laughs> yeah, nothing, nothing <laughs> went right after that. But quick after that, I was gonna say I, I do remember that you seem to have a little extra energy for that um, for that game. We'll talk about that a little bit more down the road um, yeah, about sure. which games give you the most energy, but last part of the lightning round. Well, and we talked about this off the air too. So I kind of know it's coming, but the rest of y'all might, might be in for a little surprise. What is your favorite Florida Gator Jersey color combo? Jersey color combo. I would have to go orange helmets. Cause back then we didn't have the, the white, we didn't have the other options. So when I played, it was the orange helmet, white jerseys, blue shorts. And how about for home games? Home games, oh, I would. I think you can't get around just the orange jersey, blue tops, white pants. Okay, so you're a traditionalist. Yeah, I like that's just a staple for the home games. But I don't. I think the blue tops with the. I mean, the white tops with the blue pants are the the best combo for me. So you're a traditionalist, and yet, we, as we talked about before the show, you have a very, you, you have a very strong desire to see the black jerseys. So, what is it about them that that appeals to you, and why do you think that the, the Gators should be wearing them? Um, I don't know. I think it's just another jersey combo to add to the repertoire, and I feel like, like I say, all the other sports—basketball, track, softball—all of them have a black themed jersey to some degree so i think football is the only sport that hasn't come around to it so i think it's just i think we just know how to have a blackout blackout game everybody black you know what i mean we can get black cameras that'd be even better but 
I think we should just add that to the to the repertoire because we're getting we adding a whole bunch of different variations. But like I said, I think the black and bring it out every once in a while. It's not a I wouldn't say a every year kind of thing, but I think if you stay here for four years, each kid should at least have that one game where they got a black version of a job of Florida Gator jersey. Gotcha. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Every now and then you do something, something different. Um, well, I've been asking yeah. enough questions. Uh, Dustin, Chris, I know you guys have quite a few questions uh, for our guest of honor tonight. So, Dustin, um, floor is yours, bud. Go ahead. So, Frankie, thank you so much once again for coming on with us. Now we're here. It's uh, 2022. Billy Napier is upon his first season as the head coach for the Florida Gators. What do you think of him? How's he doing? And and uh, I want you to point out maybe a, a positive that you see and, and maybe something that we can improve on. Um, first of all, I, I think he's a great coach, and I think he just needs time. You know what I mean? And dealing with our fan base and our university, we're we want it now. Like we want to win now. We want to win now. You know what I mean? So I think. He just needs more time. And like, like I say, this year, obviously, he start, I feel like he started off a great start to give us hope. Like, you know what I mean? He's going to get at it right now. And then, you know what I mean? We fought to the few games and some games look ugly. Some games look good. But all in all, I think he's a great coach. And like I said, he's still dealing with remnants of uh, Mullen. So, you know what I mean? Now he can get the guys that are tailored to his offense and – what he's trying to accomplish. So I think once he gets those guys that'll fit his scheme and what he's trying to accomplish, I think things are starting to look a little better. But right now, I think he's just trying to mold up the pieces he can. Like I say, and it, it comes with the territory with coaching. So I think it's just a matter of, like I say, working with the pieces he had, putting those guys in the best position that he thinks fits and suits them well and just kind of roll with it from there. And if sometimes it's not going to work out, a lot of times it may not work out, but like I said, that's just part of coaching and just trying to put those pieces in the right spot and just hope it gels together. And then, like I say, as time goes along and he get – as recruiting is going on, as you can see, he can get the guys that he wants and goes after the guys that he think will fit his system. And obviously it'll, it'll flow better for him because now he, he knows and goes against what he wants. So I think it'll fit better in the long run. But like I said, this year is kind of just – Got to roll with the punches as it comes. And yeah, like I say, if we win games, cool. And like I say, dealing with our our fan base, we want to go to the playoffs like right now. And you know what I mean? Sometimes that may not happen. So you just kind of have to ease off a little bit, put the brakes and let them, let them work. And then we go from there. Yeah. So Billy Napier's mentioned uh, that this is a talent acquisition business. So Frankie, you were a former Florida football player. You were also someone who went through the recruiting process. Tell us about what you see from kind of the outside looking in, in how Bailey Napier, Billy Napier and company are recruiting. And what, do you, what, what, how, how high do you think this class can end up? I just wanted to kind of give you that. Um, I think he's doing a fabulous job at recruiting. And I think the, us having that new facility and everything definitely helps out a lot. But I think recruiting across the board is up, like way up, way better than where it was before. And I I personally think we should end up at least a top five, maybe if not top three recruiting classes. I would like to be number one, but the way it's going, I think we should. But 
like I say, I just as long as I feel like he gets the guys that he wants and that fits his system. So granted, you want to get good players. Everybody needs good players to win games, but it's I think it's more so like the the five stars, of course, are gonna I just feel like are gonna do their thing and they're the top tier talent and they can come in and play and they're gonna do their thing. But it's I think the the recruiting really happens is when you get those threes and those fours who may need a little bit of development or may need, you know what I mean, may not be all quite ready to just play as a freshman the first game of the season. It's more so like developing them and making sure that they fit well because you may get a three-star guy that, you know what I mean, that can turn into the play like a five-star if he's in the right system or if you get that right guy that gels well with your system and, and whatnot. So I just think that's everybody can grab the five stars and everybody wants to get out the five stars because obviously they just they can come in they're ready to play they big strong fast all across the board and check off all the boxes but those fours and the three stars who may be weak in this area or missing this or may not be the fastest but they fit well in your system so they still make plays and they still look like a five star you know what i mean down the line because they they recruited well and they got the right kids that that fit their system so Frankie, kind of talking a little bit about that, you know, that time that Billy needs. I think one area where fans are, have maybe grown a little bit impatient this year is the defensive side of the ball. And, you know, for whatever reason, the defense has actually seemed like they may have, believe it or not, taken another step backward from where they were in 2020 and 2021. We didn't think it could get much worse than that. But here we are, judging kind of just from, I guess, an offensive player, what are you seeing that the defense is struggling with right now? And we're an area they need to improve. And obviously, I think a lot of it could be scheme or player personnel, but just kind of your, your take on, on where the defense is at. Um, I think it's across the board. I think they all just need – sometimes it just seems like they're not in sync or they're just not on the same page from the D-line to the linebacker to the back end. It's just like – like I say, that could be a scheme coming from the coach's side of it or that could just be a player thing. But I think it's just as a unit, it's just – they just seem out of sync. They're just not on the same page. Maybe they're not talking. And it could be a miscue from the linebackers to the safeties. You know what I mean? I'm not exactly – don't know exactly where the issue lies, but just to generalize, I think, like I said, it's an issue as a whole. It's just from the coach, from the defensive coaching to, like I say, the players. It's just something's out of whack and something ain't right. And I feel like it probably is something that could be fixed simply. Like, you know what I mean? It's a simple thing, but – like I say, I'm I'm not in there daily. It could be more complex than that. But like I had saw a play when we played LSU, they were like it was like third and four, and the DBs were playing like eight yards off. It was like you were just giving them the third now. And I'm like something like that. I feel like that's like move up a little bit. You know what I mean? And, and, and like I say, it may be a scheme thing that they just game plan for because maybe they saw that formation and know they do something else but they ended up just running like quick slants and it was like everybody was open he just ended up the receiver and just dropping the ball but it was like all three receivers across the board was open because they just ran like quick game so like i say it's just situations like that make you question but it's just like at the end of the day i don't know what they saw in film earlier that could have registered hey when the information here they like to run a curl or whatnot you know what i mean so at the end of the day i can't don't want to jump to conclusions but third and for me not watching film on LSU, I would think I would want to at least keep them from getting a free four yards. So it's just one of those situations that make you scratch your head. But like I say, it may be deeper than that, but just off the surface, it's just like, you see what I see, we need to scoop them up a little bit and not give them 
that much yardage. So it's just things like that where it just makes you like, what was that call about? But like I say, they it may be deeper than that. But like I say, on the surface, it just it just looks ugly. It makes you think like we could have just ran. They could have just moved them up a couple yards, and that would have solved that issue. So, Frankie, I, I want to ask you this too. You know, you obviously went through a coaching change with Coach Muschamp, you know, and year one to year two looked very different. Like year one, we were uh, six and six, we ended up seven and six with the Gator Bowl win. But then year two, we saw a pretty dramatic jump, sort of the season seven and oh, almost made the SEC national championship game that year. You know, what really is that difference from year one to year two that we do typically see in a lot of coaches? Um, unfortunately for Muschamp, he didn't have the long term success, but he certainly saw that two year bump that a lot of, you know, good coaches do see. You know, can you maybe give a little insight on what happens from year one to year two in those changes? I think it's just getting comfortable and just knowing your assignments and everybody, like I say, being on the same page and knowing how to complement each other versus offenses. Because the first year you come, everything's new. It's like you're playing catch up. You don't know how to do certain things. And it's kind of like a trial and error thing because now you're, I won't say you're thinking a lot, but it's just, it's kind of like you're instead of feeling it because I, I feel like sometimes football is more like a feel thing after the fact, once you know the playbook, it's like, once you know it, it's just like, I already know the play before they can finish it in the huddle. Cause you just, we practice it so much. We done ran it so many times. It's like, after you start talking and it's giving the formation, I'm like, oh, okay, I already know what you're doing, especially if you know the down a distance and things of that nature. So it's just like getting comfortable with things and knowing like, Hey, maybe on a curl route I can cut it short a little bit because we done ran it so many times in this situation, he knows I'm going to do this. You know what I mean? Instead of the first year where it's just like, hey, I'm running this route at 10 and I'm going to just keep it like that because I don't want to mess nothing up versus like, well, maybe I can pivot back out of this because he knows in this situation I can come out of it or they're playing a certain coverage. I can kind of tweak things. And those little things help in the long run. So it's just getting more comfortable with things. And like I say, and even on the defensive side, it's like, oh, I've seen this play. I can jump it, but I know this guy, the safety behind me got my back. But the first year, you probably wouldn't take that chance because it's like, hey, I don't want to make no mistakes. I'm just trying to figure out this defense, make sure I do my job and everything else. Versus year two, it's like, oh, I know what it is. I can give him a signal like, hey, I'm, you know what I mean? If they line up in this, I'm probably going to jump it. So if I miss it, I need you to <laughs> cover me. So it's kind of like things of that where you just get more comfortable with it. And um, and that's that was that's I think that's the big jump is just getting more comfortable, everybody being in the scene and just playing complimentary football with offense, defense, and the special teams. For sure. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. It's definitely easier said than done, especially when you're changing yeah. schemes like this year's team is. But um, let's go to the offense side of the ball, and, and let's start with the guy that I think we all kind of have pinpointed as our X factor in Anthony Richardson. We can all see the physical talent. We all see his ability to drop in a perfect deep ball. I mean, we saw that to Justin Shorter against LSU in the first minute of the game. We know what he can do. From what you're able to see, though, how does he go about becoming more consistent on a game-to-game basis? Because we've seen the great and we've seen the not-so-great most notably against Georgia last year in his first start. Um, and then this year against Kentucky and South Florida. So how does he go about becoming more consistent in what he does? Um, for me, I would think it's just not, I don't know, maybe he can handle it. Maybe he can. It's just overload or information. You know what I mean? Sometimes it's just, 
is just playing football. Like, just let him play, I think. And it's just letting him, if he sees it, make the play happen. If not, let him run, I think. And when he, I feel like, like, the Utah game was just like, he was just, he wasn't thinking. He was just playing, re- playing and reacting and just, if a guy was open, he was just making plays left and right. And then I think sometimes when, just from my perspective, it's almost like you tweak it too much or you overcoach it. And then now it's like you see the the deep throw. You want to make it so bad when you could have just took the the six-yard gain that was, you know what I mean, the check down that was right in front of you. But it, you, you overthink it sometimes. And I think that happens more times than not because he's just trying to make too many plays instead of just letting the game come to him. It's just like, I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to do that. Instead, it's just like, hey, I called a play. I'm going to read it out. This guy's open. That guy's open. Throw it. Make the play. And we move on. But like I say, to me, it just seems like an overcoaching thing. Or maybe he's just overthinking it himself. And like I say, with our fan base, (laughs) we don't make it no easier on him. And so, like I say, it's just he just needs to just, I think, just calm down and just play Anthony Richardson's football. You know what I mean? Not anybody else's. I get it. You want to see this, that. He just needs to just, like I say, settle down. Like I say, it's the first year. He's still figuring out the kinks. And when he's on, he's on. You know what I mean? And it's just like when the miscues start to happen, it's just like kind of got to just have that short-term memory, just forget about it and move on to the next player. Sounds good, Frankie. So as a former receiver, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about root running in the X's and O's of the position. So aside mm-hmm. from having quick feet, what do you think makes a great route runner and wide receiver? Uh, I would think it's knowing pre-snap kind of what you want to do before the route even starts. Because there's a lot of things that happen because sometimes built into a play, you may have like, three different route options versus like cover two versus man versus cover three, like things can change. And you got, I don't know, maybe like five or 10 seconds to process that. And even if they roll coverage, like at the snap of the ball, they may change into a defense as the ball snapped. And you still have to kind of read it out and alter your route at the snap of the ball. So thing is just, like I say, being prepared for what comes. And like I say, it's almost just reactive. You just got to see it as it's happening and react and just have those tools in your back pocket like it's just before you go to the snap okay is he pressing but if he's pressing i got i want to try this or try that and like i say sometimes it doesn't work sometimes he gets you because you may have tried it and thought it was gonna work and it did it so but more times than not like i said you just got to keep those releases and things of those nature that and even breaking off at the top of the rock it's just those little details that uh that'll separate you because like i say everybody's gonna be fast everybody's gonna be strong at this level so like I think it's just keeping those, and like I say, from route to route, it'll change versus a, a slant versus a, a twelve yard in. Then you may attack it differently. So I think it's just having pre snap those kind of things in your back pocket, like well, how you want to attack them. So that way, if that one doesn't work off the snap or he rolls coverage, you kind of got to react and like, okay, now I got to do this, and or now I got to do that. And like I say, it it happens naturally after you done done it so many times, it it becomes second nature, but. I think it's just having keeping those tools in your back pocket, those releases and everything, just on how to get free coming off the line. Because, like I said, it's a little bit more complex as you keep going because defenses are getting more complex and they disguising things. So you just kind of, like I said, you kind of react. You just got to play ball and react and react fast. 
yeah, it seems that there's more of an art to it than anything. And that's very interesting. Definitely. You definitely put on some great tape when you're playing for Florida. So I want to ask you real quick about the scheme that Florida is mm-hmm. currently playing. So what do you see as a strength in our current passing scheme? And what do you find as potentially a weakness? In the passing game, I I think that it seems like to me the more intermediate to short routes are are the the best option. Don't get me wrong, you still got to take your deep shots, take them as they are. But I think for the receivers that we have, the intermediate game needs to be like the bread and butter. So it's just like that second any route between like five to like fifteen yards. I think is that window of opportunity, at least for the style of receivers we have, because we don't got the the really small, short, quick, quick, shifty guys that you can just throw like a bubble or something. And you know what I mean? They take it 70 yards, but we got like some kind of linky guys. And I think Chris, I may be a little shifty, but I think he's still on the bigger side, but um, like Henderson and shorter, like I said, they're the bigger kind of stretch the field guys. So the intermediate to the deep routes, I think is our, our game for passes. That's just, my take on it. You know what I mean? I think it just, at that point, it's just scheming it up and trying to just get guys open, but it should be almost in sync. And like I said, that comes with time and that comes with repping it out and getting on the same page with the quarterback. And that, like I said, that happens outside of practice. That could be just hanging out together all the time and just knowing what he's thinking and reacting. So I think a lot of that comes into play too. Like I said, a lot of stuff off the field, it just, hanging with the quarterback. So when things break down, that's outside of scheme. You just, if Henderson and Richardson were best friends, I'm pretty sure Henderson would get a lot more balls because the things break down, Richardson would look for him because that's his buddy. They hang out together. They, they're more in sync. But obviously, if, if you're not in sync with that QB, then he's just either going to run or throw it out of bounds. But like I said, if he has that one guy that he can kind of like, I'm going to try to find you because I know you're thinking what I'm thinking. So, Let's work to make this work. So it's kind of one of those situations where you just got to get in sync, get on the same page. But like I say, the, the intermediate, I think, routes, I think, is our game, at least for the passing game. The running game, it seems like it's taking care of itself for the most part. But the passing game, the intermediate game, I think, is for us. Yeah, I got one final question in, in that line of thought with the flood concept. It's something that yes. Napier's run – quite a few times and it seemed to work incredibly well. We see that a lot when we have Pierre Saul coming across the field and he's mm-hmm. usually wide open between the safeties. Correct. Talk to us about why that works and why it works, especially with the type of offense that we're running and specifically the type of offense and what we're running with the threat of Anthony Richardson to run the ball. Correct. So it's, it's like the safety has can't be right. Either the safety or the corner, one of them is going to make a wrong decision because if you got the flood, you typically have a deep threat to pull that safety out. So if that safety doesn't respect that deep threat, then we just throw it over his head. So if that'll pull him out regardless, that'll at least if they're playing, they're playing cover one, then he's out of the picture totally. But if they're playing cover two, then that the safety that's on that side of the deep route, he's pulled out because he has to respect that post or that, or that go route. Then you have a flat control whoever that may be, the running back or the slot receiver who has something in the flat just to pull that corner. So if the corner 
happens to see the flood coming across and he floats across, maybe if it's cover three or even cover four, um, he'll try to float back and then you'll throw the, obviously you take what he's giving you, he's giving you the flat route, go ahead and throw the flat. But most people see the flat that brings that corner back up. And then there's that void in the middle where like you just like right behind, right over the linebackers, in between that safety that's getting pulled and nine times 10 is open. He just needs time. It's just a matter of time for a play like that to develop because he has to, if it's man, he has to work to get open. And then if it's zone, like I said, he has to work through that zone and then get kind of like over those backers so he can get it over his head. So normally there's a void in there and most of 90% of the time is there. If he has the time, it's just a matter of holding up and uh, getting that ball off. Uh, So kind of going back to your playing days a little bit and getting in the mindset of, you know, you talk about the mindset of a receiver, what they do on the field, your mindset, what was a way that you got motivated pregame, got yourself, check yourself in the game, um, kind of just the mental aspect of playing football, especially in the SEC. Yeah. Well, when I was in school, I think Muschamp and Mud, I mean, Muschamp and um, Meyer did a great job of just, preparing and making sure we're going over everything um pregame so you kind of there was like really no thought and um so you kind of almost knew especially with the later games we would have walkthroughs and stuff and it was kind of like a number you kind of knew what you had to do and like I said I think that was the was the determining factor I think once you get to the NFL it's kind of like you should know we're not gonna baby you you know what I mean you're professional now you know your stuff you handle it as such, but you know what I mean? With dealing with, like I say, 18 to 20 year olds, 18 to 22 year olds, you kind of got to stay on us and make sure we're honing in on, on those things. And like I say, the, the pregame, even the night before walking through stuff and they, they kind of give us sheets to help us like little tips and stuff to kind of help us. And like I say, from that night before you kind of game planning on what you're doing or how you want to run these routes or get with the quarterback, like if they call this, should be running like this or should I do that and kind of just figuring out the little tweaks ourselves and moving on from there and like I said the next morning is just you lock in everybody got their ritual for me it was just listening to music going out there kind of going through those plays in my head uh and getting warmed up and getting ready to play because me personally I like 12 o'clock games because there's no there's no thinking it's like you just wake up eat go to the game play your music and play it's like seven o'clock you sit there, you think about it all day, you got to walk through, you got to rest for a little bit, then you walk through again. It's kind of like, okay, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. I'm ready to play now because you, you've been going over the same plays over and over again. It's like you're kind of just ready to go. So I think um, the preparation, I think, starts that night before. And as long with the coaches, I'm pretty sure they, they still do it now. They just probably have a different way of doing it. But the coaches make sure you're prepared and then up until kickoff is just – on you locking in and um, making sure you're ready to go. And kind of speaking about the coaches, you mentioned Meyer and you mentioned Muschamp. Talk a little bit about the, the differences in those guys. Obviously, you know, both very intense guys uh, on the field, off the field, um, but kind of maybe touch on their differences in approach to, to game planning or, or how to build a culture in a program. Yeah, so one – my, I think every head coach comes from one side of the ball or the other. So Meyer was came from the offensive side, so he was more geared for the offense. You know what I mean? He wants to see the offense shine. Not to say that defense 
didn't do well as well, but he's an offensive coach. So when things don't go right in offense, he kind of puts his hands on it and like, hey, we need to do this or we need to run this play in this situation because I need to see this happen. You know what I mean? Or I need to, we need to get some momentum going. So we need to get that into play. And then Muschamp, it was kind of like the flip. It was like, I'm defensive minded. We need to do this on defense. When things weren't going around defense, he put his hands on it. Not to say like he didn't have no say so on offense, but like I say, when you come from that side of the ball, it's kind of like you put your you put your touch on it. So if, like I said, if I were to become a head coach, I'd focus more on offense naturally just because that was the side of the ball I came from. So I think that was a that was a one of the major differences is like I said, it was just one's more offensive minded, the other's more defensive minded. And like I say, it's just a matter of which side of the ball you come from. So that was a major difference, but like I said, they still handle their business accordingly on both sides of the ball. But like I say, when things don't go right, they go put their hands on it more so on that defense. Much it was more so the defensive side, and like I say, Meyer was more so the offensive side. And if things weren't going right on defense for Meyer, it's kind of like, hey, he go look at Coach Strong, like what's going on? We need to we need to get something right, and then on the Vice versa, much time offense going right. You know what I mean? He kind of come look at what you think we had Coach Wise at the time. We had Coach P. So it's kind of like, hey, what we got going on? Let's get this going. Let's try this. Let's do that. Then they kind of have a discussion versus things not going right on the defense much time. He's just going to get in the head saying and call, call it himself. And Myra's the same way on, on offensive side. It's like, I'm called. We No, I don't care what you're calling. I'm calling this play. This is what we're going to run. And let's go couple of very interesting things that you just pointed out would definitely love to have you back on at some point throughout the offseason so we can go into more detail about them but back to this current florida team and this upcoming game that we have in jacksonville this weekend there has been some steam that's been gained the last couple of years from mostly the georgia side but a little bit florida side too about potentially moving the game out of jacksonville uh, earlier this week, the two schools released a joint statement that definitely made it seem like, if nothing else, they are considering moving the game. You play the game in Jacksonville. I mean, it's, it's all you know. You weren't a part of any of the games that were in Athens or in in Gainesville. But from from your recollection, I mean, what what is the game in Jacksonville like? What is it like more generally to play in this rivalry? And what do you think – the future of this game should be and, and where should it be played? Uh, like I say, it's all I know. So I think it needs to stay in Jacksonville because it's just one of those things that has become a tradition. So I, I, I would I love to go play in Georgia State of yes, but it's just a matter of fact that this is, this is how it's been and this is how it's been for the longest. So it's just one of those things where, I think it should it should stay there. I don't know how that affects, like, I don't know, maybe the money side of it and things of that nature. It may be more of a money thing if they played at each other's stadium versus playing in another Jaguar stadium. But, but like I say, it's one of those things like a tradition. It's like you kind of breaking out of it. And if it happens, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with it. But like I say, it's one of those things like I think it should stay in Jacksonville. I like the stadium being half split have 50 50 and i just feel like no matter how i feel like the ball's rolling in georgia's favor for this game but it's one of those things where like you never know you know what i mean like you georgia play around you might they might take an l so it's just 
because of the environment, because of the, this type of game, I think you can never like anything goes in a game like this. Anything can happen. So I think with it being in that place in like a neutral site, and it's equal across the board versus say this year we were going to Africa. It's just like, okay, well, it's a home game. You know what I mean? They kind of got the momentum. It's home to an advantage. And, uh, and, and you know how that goes when you're at your own place, you play a little bit more comfortable and things like that because you're at home. But I think I think it should stay in Jacksonville. So I think a lot of Gator fans do agree with you. I know Chris is a big proponent of keeping it in Jacksonville. Dustin, I think you're on that same page, right? I think Dustin is on. on yeah, a thousand percent. I yeah. think Jacksonville is just a staple. The Florida Georgia robbery, the formerly the world's largest cocktail party. Cocktail party. Yeah. It's a big yeah. deal. It, I, I think it has to stay there. Yeah. Um, I, so I agree. Ahead, Chris. No, I, no, I would say I agree. And just my thoughts on it is like from a fan's perspective, you know, I was a freshman in 2011. So Frankie, when you were in school and, I haven't missed a Florida Georgia game since, you know, and it's just kind of an annual tradition from the fan side. You, you go up Friday night, you go out, see the town, catch up with some friends that maybe live in the area that you, you know, went to college with, they were been friends with, you know, for life. And you, you go tailgate, you hop around and, and then you go to the game. And, and honestly, like it kind of takes this thing away from when those losses do come in that game, you know, cause I think when you have, you know, great experience regardless of the outcome. And I think that's what Jacksonville and that tradition provides. It just makes right. for a great experience and something you look forward to. So I hope it stays. I really do. And I hope that they can work something out where it's lucrative for both sides to keep it there. I know. And the other big point is that they've allowed recruits now to start visiting. Cause that was a concern of yes. Coach, uh, smart. So, which makes yeah. sense. I, I get that argument. Yeah. Kirby smart making sense. Uh, not something that Gator fans like to admit very often, but I think in that particular instance, he definitely did. I mean, I, I'm 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 for keeping it in Jacksonville. I don't think I'm as strongly for it as maybe Chris and Dustin are, but I'm I'm in favor of it. Just because I mean, I've been in Gainesville like the night Florida beat LSU in 18, the day we beat Auburn in 19, the day we beat Tennessee in 17 on the Hail Mary, just how absolutely crazy Gainesville was. And in the aftermath yeah. of those wins, you, you know, you, you add Georgia to that mix and I'm just going to imagine it, it being completely off the charts, but I, I do agree with, with Chris and Dustin Jacksonville is a staple. It is tradition. I don't think that just because it's tradition necessarily means that it was the right move in the first place as a general rule. But I do think in this particular instance, there has been a lot of goodwill built up in that city. And I think both fans or I think both fan bases are kind of used to it at this point and have made their own memories there. So it does kind of feel like home for both, but I'm not, I, I would not be devastated if they moved it out, but I'm just not in favor of that. And it's the only time that that stadium is actually full all season. So that's also they kind of need, they, they kind of need the game. <laughs> They even expanded, although although they actually are taking seats out this year. They did it last year, and they're doing it again this year. They're removing, uh, I think, five thousand six hundred seats from its from its extended capacity. I think they I think they can extend it to, I think, eighty four thousand five seventy, and they're removing, I think, almost six thousand seats from that. So it'll be it'll be under seventy eight thousand this year again. But hmm. still, anyway. Um, Onto our, our wrap-up show that we call The Verdict. This is where we get into the details of the upcoming game. We're talking Florida, Georgia, of course, the rivalry. We've 
I mean, you mentioned it, Frankie. A lot of stuff can happen in this game that people wouldn't necessarily predict. Fun fact, Georgia actually is currently on the right side of the single largest point spread in the history of this game. 22.5 point favorite is the largest point spread ever in this game. The previous largest was 21 in 1971. And this year it is 22 and a half for Georgia. So just think about that. Not even in 2017, not even in 2021 where Georgia was, I mean, supposedly, and I think they proved it to be a fair point spread, but they were the massive favorite in that game. Wasn't by this much. So Frankie, as I'm sure you're aware of Florida though, does have a history of beating Georgia teams that are supposed to be better than it. So before we get into our, our little cut and dried questions to end our show, I'll just ask it more broadly for you. What does Florida have to do to pull the upset in this game? Uh, limit mistakes. One, <laughs> just play clean football. Don't do anything to beat themselves. Throw picks, interceptions, uh, fumble the ball, stupid penalties. Just play, like I say, clean football. Take care of the football. And I think take advantage of the opportunities as they come. For me, I think it's just... Like I said, if that deep ball ain't there, throw your check down. If it's there, launch it. I'm all for it. But like I said, just take what they give you and don't make it more complicated than what it is. I mean, they had a tough time with uh, Missouri. And like I said, that was a game they weren't taking care of the ball. So I think it's just they fumble. They want to throw picks. They want to do all that. Let's take advantage of it. And let's, you know what I mean, go down the field and make them pay for it. So I think it's just one of those games where we just have to play cleanly and execute and like I say, taking advantage of the opportunities as they come. So what position group of Georgia's would you say is going to be the most problematic for Florida to have to deal with? Hmm, that is a good question. I would say I think it'll be, uh, dang, because they, across them, just for me, I think our, I think we'll be able to move the ball better than, it'll be us having to slow them down okay. on the defensive side. I think the offense will go back and forth. It'll be a thing, but I think we'll be able to put it up more. I think it's just a matter of slowing them down and, and them scoring. I gotcha. think it's just I, my more focus would be like the defensive side. If I'm watching the game, I need to focus more on the defensive side and just making sure they're not giving them up. Because I, I think once Anthony, if he's on like he should be, we have no problem moving the ball. Yeah, when they get there, we're going to get there every once in a while, for sure. But like I said, it's just – Slowing down Georgia's offense. Yeah, I think that's I think, I think that's probably fair analysis. Uh, so those are those are definitely verdict esque questions, but we do have a, a series of, of three questions we all uh, go around and answer <coughs> to cap every show. So uh, Dustin, Chris, myself, and you will we'll each go around and, and give our answers to this. And uh, y'all listening to this, feel free to tweet us what you think about each of these as well. First piece of the verdict, your official key to the game. We touched on this, but um, a little bit more specifically, what do you think will decide this game one way or another? Our defense. Our defense, I think, is the key to our success. (laughs) Say defense win championships, so I think it lies on our defense. We can can slow them down, down, I think, will be our. Okay, Dustin, Chris, you guys – I feel like as the host, I go last. So y'all go ahead. What's what's your key for this game, Dustin? Yeah, so the, the big matchup to look out for is the tight ends. Georgia has 
two of the best tight ends yes. in the country. Uh, you got Darnell Washington and Brock Bowers, who both have been on a tear. Um, now, oddly enough, Georgia's only thrown about seven touchdown passes. Uh, Stetson Bennett's only thrown seven touchdown passes. So they're scoring predominantly running the ball. But it's the tight ends that kill opposing defenses, especially on third down. The reason why I say it like that is Florida has been abysmal on third down, especially in the last two games. So a big time key for me is going to be third down defense against these tight ends. Now, something that that I do and I have done for the last few weeks is padlock stats. So if you're unfamiliar with what that means, that's a stat that if I was to lock you in a room and you did not get the chance to see the game, if I told you these stats and you saw the result of these stats at the end of the game, you would know which team won. And so my padlock stat, in other words, the stats that I'm going to be looking for to nearly, and I emphasize that, nearly guarantee a victory, Florida must be plus three in the turnover battle. In other words, Florida must force three more turnovers than we produce on offense. And Florida needs to run the ball for more than 200 yards. Of course, every Gator fan is going to be looking to that 2014 game. You know, we all remember the fake field goal for a touchdown, but Florida ran for an astounding 418 yards in that game. If Florida does that, I think they win. The, the question is, can they do that? And it's going to be very hard against Georgia's really good defense. They're not as elite as they were last year. So there's definitely a path for a victory for Florida, but it's going to be very difficult as we'll certainly discuss in a few minutes. Chris. Dustin, really good points. I think you hit on a lot of them, similar themes to what I'm going to say. The other one that I'll say, I mean, I, I agree first off on the turnovers, Florida's going to have to steal points in this game. They're going to have to intercept uh, Stetson Bennett. They're going to have to force a fumble, get a recovery. It's going to be a defense that's like I mentioned in the Tennessee game. When my my keys, when I said it had to be a bend but don't break defense, and I think we're going to have to see that. The linebackers are going to have to obviously uh, limit the tight end position, like you said. But the other thing I'm going to say is I want to see better time of possession from this offense. That is that is a statistic that Billy Napier's teams that they've become known for in the past is they've controlled the game by holding the ball for long periods of time. And, for, you know, we're a very effective run game, a run team. You know, of all the statistics we've seen where we, we rank poorly across the country, running game is actually the one where we excel at. We're one of the top, uh, I think, top 20 in the country, in fact. So that's an area where if we can somehow run the football, this is not the same Georgia defensive line front seven that we saw last year that they're all playing in the NFL right now. So if we can maybe take advantage of that, I know they've had a lot of injuries on that side of the ball, especially in the front seven. If we were able to run the football, control the clock, and get some turnovers, and limit Georgia's ability to score, then we could be in the game at the end of it. I mean, you know, and definitely cover that 22-point spread. But the key is to be in the game when the fourth quarter starts. You have to be in it. And, and I think people forget, too, last year, we kind of did that at the beginning of the game, right? You go back three minutes left before halftime, it was 3 nothing. Georgia was only up by three against us last year. And, and the, the onslaught happened. 
which leads me to my last point is that Florida has to play a turnover free game. We cannot turn the football over. We can't give them any easy fields, any easy drives because Georgia's going to get theirs. We know that they're going to score in this game. They're going to move the ball in this defense, but do not give it to them easy. Make them go earn it, make them drive the length of the field. And, and we just cannot, we have to play mistake free ball. Um, and, and the other thing is, you know, I'd like to see us maybe continue to improve in the special teams game. I think we've seen some signs of improvement there over the last couple of weeks. You know, we got the, the muff punt recovery against LSU. That was one of the lone bright spots of that game. But we have to find a way to steal points. And that's through turnovers, that's through special teams, and that's also through controlling the clock and keeping it um, from Georgia. I'm a little wary of what I'm going to say next just because of all the issues that Texas A&M has. And, I mean, the fact that Vanderbilt just isn't that great. But I don't think Florida is going to win another game if they don't start making tackles in the open field and if they don't stop with all the defensive miscommunications and busts because that is just such an easy way to, to just kill yourself. Uh, I mean, we saw against LSU, Florida literally could not make a stop. The, the whole game because there, there was one defensive miscue after another uh, guys weren't taking the right angles. I mean, Dustin's thing about attacking the right hip guys weren't doing that. I mean, you have mid snap, you have guys yelling at each other. You know, you have this guy. No, you have, I mean, there's pointing, there's a lot, a lot of, a lot of not so happy communication along the defensive side of the ball. So Florida has to get a lot better in that, obviously, if they want to beat Georgia, because I don't think, that Georgia's defense, while it, it is not quite what last year's was, I don't think Georgia's defense is going to have as many holes in it as LSU did for Anthony Richardson. So Florida's defense is going to be up to a very, very tough challenge, and that is, as you know, Dustin talked about, stopping the tight ends. We saw that was a problem earlier for Florida in the year against Utah when they had two tight ends that were very, very athletic and uh, and, and break Keithy and Dalton Kincaid, Florida really didn't stop those guys. They they had big games against Florida. So that's going to be something that Florida has to do well. But just start with the fundamentals. Just start with the basics. Just make tackles in the open field. Don't let the three-yard gain become a 33-yard gain. If you've got Bennett wrapped up in the backfield, get him on the ground. Don't let that sack turn into a 60-yard run. I think he had a 65-yard TD run against Auburn or so. So, I mean, finish plays when they're there. And just don't give them anything easy. Make them earn it. And I think if Florida does that for a full four quarters and it doesn't have any of those, oh, no, I thought I thought this guy had that route. I thought you had the slant. Oh, if, if, if they have none of those for a 60-minute game, I think Florida has a much better chance than they otherwise would. And, of course, Richardson has to keep playing well. I mean, Richardson has pretty much been – I'd say I'd say he's been playing well since uh, the Tennessee game, with the with the one exception of Missouri. But I mean, that game aside, he he has been trending upward, so he has to continue that trend. And I think if he does that, and the defense does what it's supposed to do, Florida will increase its chances uh, in this game tremendously. So that is our the those are our keys. Next point of business the percent chance we think Florida has to win. So Frankie uh, from, from zero to a hundred, what percent chance do you give Florida to pull off this upset? Okay. I'm going with 40. 40%. Okay. 40. 
Because, uh, like I said, it's just one of those games where you never know. So I, I want to get as close to 50 as I can. So I'm going to roll with 40 just to keep the percentages high. I don't know. I'm a little biased because I'm a fan. So <laughs> we feel that. <laughs> Dustin, what have you got? Yeah, no, I'm going to say this right now, and I'd probably say it later with the score as well. But unfortunately, we're here to analyze the sport, and we got to take our fan hat off and put our analyst hat on. And while I certainly think there is a path for Florida to win. I'm only giving them a 10% chance to pull out the victory. Ooh, 10%. Okay. Chris, what have you got? I, yeah, I'm actually going to go even lower. I'm, I'm going to say a, I'm going to say a 7% chance. Yeah. I think when we did this at the beginning of the season, I had it at like an eight or a nine. So it only went down a percent, but it's, it's going to be tough. It's, it's going to be a tough game, but you know, I think, like we mentioned, this is a this is a rebuilding year. So we'll uh, and there's a chance. There's seven percent as me. There's a chance. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'll say this: if you, I mean, Dustin, Dustin is the padlock stat guy. If you were to to padlock me in a room and say, "I'm not going to tell you the score, but I'm going to tell you right now that Anthony Richardson plays the game of his life." I think that that tax 20% on what I'm about to say. And if you tell me that the defense has used the bye week to continue to patch things up on its side of the ball, I think that would tack another 10% on. So right there, you've got 30% that if these two things that are, are possible, they're, they're certainly possible. If these two things happen, what I'm about to say gets 30% tacked onto it. But I'm going to go with 12%, and that's because Georgia is just so much better in the trenches than Florida is right now. We don't really have much of a pass rush on the defense side of the ball. The offensive line, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say it that, that blanketly. The offensive line for Florida has been a strength, but Georgia's defensive line is also really, really good, and I think it's going to be Florida's offensive line's toughest challenge of the year by far. LSU had some, LSU had some maulers up there, but Georgia's just a different level of talent. So – uh, but I mean that that's where games just are are won and lost. And I just I, I haven't seen it from this defense to put any trust in them. So again, if you're to tell me that, that AR plays the game of his life, and if you're to tell me that this defense has used the bye week to shore up a lot of things and eliminate a lot of mistakes, then that goes up to 42%. But I, I don't know that. I don't have that information. I like that 40, my guy. Yeah, I mean, it, hey, it's possible. <laughs> Those are two things that are possible. And Frankie's like pumping his fist. I love it. Um, I mean, look, we saw the defense play well against Utah, against a very athletic Utah offense, and we saw them play well against a, a watered-down version of Kentucky, but nonetheless an SEC team in Kentucky. So if they can just get back to that form, I'll I'll raise my percentage up. But, but under no circumstances am I saying Florida is – 50% or higher. There's, there's nothing that you can tell me that would, would get us to that. So final order of business score predictions, Frankie head, not your heart. Um, what have you got? Uh, I would say like a 35, 21, 24 ish realm. 
I'm going to say 35-24. For Georgia. Georgia. Yeah. It hurts, I know. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. It's it's not fun for any of us to predict scores like this. Dustin, what have you got? Yeah, Neil. Actually, if I think I think that based on what you said earlier, if Anthony Richardson has the performance that he had against Tennessee and the defense performs like they did against Kentucky, even in a loss in that game, I think Florida could potentially win the game. So I, I agree with what you with what you said earlier. Now, as far as my score, again, this is very difficult. I'm going to go Georgia 45 and Florida 21. That would be a 24-point victory. And unfortunately, my rule the rest of the season is I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to go if – if, if Florida is predicted to lose by a certain amount by the spread, I can't go over that. So uh, because – Georgia is because Florida is a 22 and a half point dog. I got to go with something under that. So I got to go 20, 24 points on that. So, yep, 45 to 21. So, my prediction, kind of close to Frankie's, I'm going to say Florida does cover the spread. And I'm going to go final score Georgia 34, Florida 17. Last year, Georgia won 34 to 7. So, I'm going to give the Gators a 10 point improvement on offense this year. But if Florida were to win the game, I'll give you a score. This is not my official prediction. It would have to be something where, like, it's a 27, 21, 27, 23. Like, we got to keep the game in the 20s. For Florida to win, it, the game's got to be in the 20s, lower scoring, well under the, the under for that to happen. Okay. I can, I can see that, though. I, I can also see this being, like, an all-time ugly 10-7, like 2010 Mississippi State type of score, like Vanderbilt in 15. If, if, and and I'll say this again, if our defense has used the bye week to get a lot better, that that is banking on a lot. But I think if Florida wins, it's going to be something, man, maybe not quite that ugly, maybe like 14-10 or 17-10 or something like that, but not a lot of points. I don't see Florida breaking 20 in this game. But my official score prediction, I'll, I'll stay pretty close to you, Chris. I do think Florida covers the spread. I think that spread is ridiculous. But I'll say I'll say 31-14, Georgia. So, now, not a complete embarrassment, but also not exactly a nail-biter at the end either. So, um, that said, I mean, Frankie, I think that's all we've got for, for our listeners today. Thank you so much for taking the time to stop by our pod and, and talk Gators with us. Um, are are we going to be seeing you in the swamp again this year for South Carolina? Yep, I will be there. I'm pretty sure I, I know where to find you now. So, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll make sure I come holler at you. You do. You do. Yeah, we'll definitely. Have, oh, oh, yeah. Before we go, little quick little story. Um, So, yeah. Forgot to mention this at the top of the pod, but Frankie, you and I actually knew each other before we, you know, years knew ago. each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we we had a connection um, through through a mutual mutual friend uh, family of ours. Do you want to do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that with with JT and and the Houston's? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, JT JT is a 
star receiver in South Florida right now out of St. Thomas University. Um, but I knew him um, when I played in Kansas City. He was the only kid, like my pregame one, where he would always be sitting. Like if I come out, because in Kansas City, the tunnel is like literally behind the bench. But like, when you come out, I would always go to the left to start my warm up in that end row. And he would always be in that left corner. I don't know why he was young back then, but he would be the only little kid sitting there. And I don't know why he would just always be looking for me. <laughs> it's like the same time, same place. He was always in that spot. It's like always the right time. I don't know how. Maybe it was two hours and 30 minutes before the game. He just knew to be right there because I was coming out at that time. And after the first time I saw him and the second time, it's just like – okay, I'm going to see this kid every home game now. And you know what I mean? The relationship kind of grew from there. I, I met his parents and everything. And he was becoming a, a star in Kansas City. And then his parents um, had some family in South Florida. And I think they were entertaining the idea of moving him to South Florida. I was just like, I'm from down there. He should go because football is a whole lot better down there. I think he would grow as an athlete, being around better competition. Not to say that Kansas City did, but like I say, Florida's South Florida's like a recruiting bed for athletes. And like I said, I think he would excel. So he made that jump going to high school. And like I said, he never looked back. And I think, shoot, as a freshman in high school, he was already like my height, my size, and everything. I haven't seen him within this past year, but I'm pretty sure next time I go down, I'll, I'll holler at him. But great kid. Like I said, the sky's the limit. I'm pretty sure he can go to just about any college you want to right now at this at this moment. So uh you ever hear about him, James JT Madison. Yeah. J so yeah, James is his his birth name. He goes by JT because his first cousin is James Houston. His father's mm -hmm. name is also James. His cousin's or, or his uncle's name is also James. So a lot of James is in there. So they call him JT to, to eliminate confusion. Separate. But yeah, yeah. But so so he lives with with his aunt and uncle, which are the, the birth parents of James Houston, the fourth. Um, so yeah, cool connection that we had that we didn't even, I don't think we even knew we had that until just a couple of years ago, but definitely, definitely something cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's great sure. that you, it's great. That, it's great that you took that time to you know be there for him and, and sort of mentor him a little bit and get to know him a little bit better and give him some advice. And I mean, Frankie, I think it's, Think that's a think that think that's a show, guys. I think we had a, a lot of fun talking with the former Gator great tonight. Definitely look forward to uh, to the game this Saturday. Look forward to seeing you back in the swamp, Frankie. And y'all, we thank you for listening. We encourage y'all to stay safe and stay healthy and and be there in Jacks this weekend and be loud because Gators are going to need you this week. You better believe we'll be loud in Jacksonville. It'll be awesome. <laughs> well, Frankie, thank you so much for your time and. Go Gators. Yeah, no problem, man. I appreciate you having me on, man. Go Gators. Go Gators. Yeah, thanks, Frankie. Go Gators. All right.